Hello ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Your Fave Film Critic, the podcast starring uh, your favorite film critic, that is me, Dom Griffin. Uh, this is episode 19 of the podcast. We're, we're, it's been 19 weeks, it's crazy. Uh, this is uh, going to be, I think, a fun episode, a lot of fun stuff happened this week. I, uh, I'm going to talk about sort of some follow-ups from, from some stuff we talked about last week in the news section. I'll talk about some of the movies I saw this week. Uh, I've got a couple of questions at the end. You know, the, the, you guys are, I think by now you're familiar with the format. Uh, but there's a lot of interesting things happening uh, in, uh, in the world of movies and, and film and, and, and such. So uh, we'll just uh, get started with the news. <clears throat> so uh, two things. I want to follow up from news that we talked about last week. So Thing one is that last week, I believe it was last episode, we were celebrating the SAG after strike coming to a conclusion. Uh, and at the time, uh, we, me, most of us, I assume, were very excited. And it's only been like a week and we've already seen. They have been throwing, heaving actors at at publicity things like Kevin Nash lawn darting Rey Mysterio Jr. on WCW Nitro when I was a child. Like there is just just pinpoint bullet level accuracy shooting these people at like every opportunity to talk about their projects for the first time. They're all just like stoked to 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 ply their wares. Uh, and there's been a bunch of like deals that have been like closed or are in the process of closing. And you know, it, it's like oh hey we're back to business, back to business, back to business. Uh, and in the last couple of days. It appears, at least at the moment, I'm not super well versed in a lot of the details, but it appears that the provisional agreement, like the provisional new contract that uh, the like nom uh, the uh, negotiating committee had sort of agreed to to like halt the strike. It sounds like there's some shit in there about AI stuff and digital likeness stuff that is troubling for a lot of actors, especially uh non-a-list actors like the majority of the guild and it's it i mean i'm, I'm not an expert in matters such as this but it does seem like a distinct possibility that when the body of sag votes on this new contract that they're going to vote no and if they vote no i believe that means the strike is back on the strike is not ended the strike is like halted while they you know agree to the new deal and if the new deal uh, ends up tanking, then that means this is over and they have to go back on strike. Um, I've even seen people theorize, you know, that maybe some of the fast tracked stuff that's been going on, where it just seems like things are moving very, very fast. I had sort of assumed, okay, well, I mean, a lot of these things have maybe been quietly discussed for the last few months anyway. I mean, I think a lot of people were probably under the table talking to people even during the strike. I thought like that probably happens. But now it actually sort of feels a little bit more like the studio sort of knew this was going to happen and that this, this break might not last long and that they just wanted to get the most going that they possibly could. And I don't know if maybe they're just banking on the idea that people will have a week of seeing their celebrities promoting things again or something and be like, I miss this. Fuck the actors. Get, get back to work. Uh, and I don't know that that's really how people are going to react to it. There's obviously dissension amongst the guild about it. So, like, I mean, who knows? It might just, it, maybe it'll pass. And then the, the strike will just stay dead. And there are some elements 
to the deal that are not beneficial that people have problems with. And I don't remember reading very much about people having issues with the the WGA's deal. Um, there was I don't I mean it's possible that there was, and it's just like you know deeper than I probed. But it did feel like almost everyone seemed happy with it, whereas this does seem like there's a lot of contentious points. So uh, I'll link in the show notes uh, a piece I read about this and like a, a pretty informative Twitter thread. I'm not going to like try to synthesize it because like I didn't retain it. I just, I remember getting the vibe that like this, this does sound shitty, you know? So that's the important part is if it's like fucking over the workers, but yeah, SAG after strike, maybe not over, maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, that was like kind of a, cause I'd seen a couple of things, I think on like TikTok, and I hadn't like really engaged with them cause I was kind of like, eh, I mean, I feel like maybe there are just some people that are going to come out and not like it. I mean, it's not, nothing's ever unanimous. But then it started to seem more like, oh, no, this actually does sound kind of fucked, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's that's nutty. Um, and then last week we also talked about the Coyote versus Acme movie getting shelved by WBD. Uh, and it sounds like there's been a reversal of that. Uh, I guess uh, a mixture of three, I think, different like pressures has have, have changed uh, what's going to happen. One, and the one people are probably the most proud of, is like just public dissension to this decision, right? There's a lot of social media traction and people being like, yo, what the fuck? This movie sounds fun. We want to see it. And I think the biggest reason why that helped a little bit is that it does sound like the movie like is good or like is pretty, like it tested extremely well, you know? Uh, so like this happened with Batgirl, like people were like, release it anyway, release it anyway. And I think they, they just sort of kind of knew like, no, <laughs> like this is going to do more harm than good. But then they released, you know, the flash and they're still going to release Aquaman too. So I don't know, whatever, but this does appear to be getting a different, uh, fate than Batgirl. And, uh, it, it sounds like they're going to be shopping. Here's the crazy part though. They're going to release it, but they're not going to release it. They're going to allow, uh, the people behind the film to shop it around to other, buyers so like this past week i guess they've been hosting private screenings for people at amazon at apple at like all the all the places that you know would want to bid on something like this and i feel like amazon might get it that seems like the most likely uh, when when wbd dropped the new batman animated series that bruce tim is doing with like jj abrams or whatever amazon snapped it up it seems like something they they'll just like kind of pick these things up i guess as they can but if that is what happens, it's going to be crazy to see like a Looney Tunes movie that doesn't open up with the Warner shield, you know, like that's fucking crazy. Uh, Amazon is like also a fucked up company, but it would be funny if they made like a parody version of the shield using the Amazon logo or something. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's nuts, but it does sound like it's going to get released, which is I think really good. Um, I'm sorry, but the, uh, I said three pressures. So one of them, like I said, was, the uh, I guess it's really two pressures is fan resentment right like to the brand but it sounds like the bigger one was just that like uh, a lot of people just like canceled meetings that they had with people at w- uh, wbd when this came out like i think i think this more than batgirl more than the scooby-doo movie they shelved really hit the sense of like why would i want to do business with this studio if i can make a movie that comes in on time and on budget and tests well and they still might write it off for tax purposes and no one will ever see it. Uh, I feel like Warner Brothers in the last few years, you know, with the Discovery merger and Zaslav and like the a lot of the HBO Max stuff, they have really 
uh, burned a lot of bridges when the, this used to be a very filmmaker friendly studio. It used to be a place that a lot of big name directors felt comfortable doing stuff. And I really feel like Universal's kind of picked up the baton from that. I mean, they got, you know, they got Nolan for Oppenheimer and then they've been kind of given M. Night Shyamalan a wide berth to do stuff. They have a good relationship with Jordan Peele. Like, it really feels like that's the place to go if you actually want your shit to be respected. And it's amazing the Warner Brothers lost that. And when, they, when that, that has been, a, I feel like, a staple of the brand for years. Uh, but yeah, it really does sound more like the people, like, you know, okay, if we don't release this, people will stop fucking with us. Uh, and I'm, I sort of feel like that pressure was probably the bigger deal. Because I imagine it might have set off... Uh, like a domino effect of, you know, like financial issues and stuff, you know, because I, I, I think they said something like they were still going to give everybody involved, like their streaming bonuses as if it was released or some shit like that. And it was just like, you could just fucking put it out. But yeah, it sounds like they're going to put it out or sell it to someone to put it out. And, you know, whatever, more power to them, I guess. I don't work there. I don't understand the strategy. But if it means the movie comes out, the movie comes out. So that's the stuff that's like follow ups from last week. Uh, I have a few more items that are like new things that happened this week and they're all, they're all like superhero shit related. So, but they're things that just, I have a lot of thoughts about, so I'm going to talk about it. I, I know there are definitely people that listen to the pod and watch the channel who like don't give a fuck about comic books and superhero stuff. So if this gets a little bit too nerdy for you, you know, you can always skip ahead. I fully respect that. Uh, I assume it's the same as like if I start talking about pro wrestling or if there are people that do love superhero stuff and just tune out when I start talking about like movie bro shit. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, so the first thing. Um, so it sounds like Pedro Pascal has not officially signed a deal yet, but that he is likely going to be playing Reed Richards in the MCU's Fantastic Four movie that Matt Shackman is directing. Uh, there are a bunch of things related to this uh, in the MCU that feel like big, uh, reverberations from things that have happened and like, okay, the Marvels, uh, last week opened, uh, with I think $47 million, uh, opening weekend, which is the lowest, uh, Marvel opening ever, like ever, uh, lower than the Incredible Hulk in 2008, uh, lower than Ant-Man, the first Ant-Man and, Fucking lower than the Eternals, which came out like before the pan, like when the when the pandemic was still kind of raw and heavily impacting box office numbers. That did better than this. And I've seen a lot of defenders with their shields up. And the three biggest talking points I've seen is I've seen people go, I don't like that Variety and Deadline and all these sites are reporting on this failure, and they're not highlighting that this is the first Marvel movie to come out during the strike. Yes, the movie came out the day the strike ended, but every other Marvel movie um, came out like when people could promote it. This is the first movie they've done um, that that has not been true. Like the cast was able to promote Guardians of the Galaxy, they were able to promote Quantumania. So like people really feel like that's a big deciding factor. It's not fair not to to highlight that. I don't I don't fully buy that because like. Quantumania wasn't even marketed that fucking well. Do you know what I mean? And like it did more than this. And it ended up and it was terrible. I feel like it was definitely worse than this film. Uh of course, it's a Disney movie, so there's the other defense, which is that it's just a bunch of racist white bros that don't like it because it's directed by a black woman 
and there's like people of color in it and there's women and like all this stuff with whatever like all these woke anti-woke guys and it's like those guys weren't gonna fucking see the movie anyway so like it feels it feels very strange to like blame that for the movie's failure i feel like if you are marketing a movie and you just fail to convert people who hate everything you stand for and you blame that is how things went wrong that doesn't make any sense because it's like well then why the fuck weren't you trying harder to reach the people that fucking do care and like would be interested in seeing this do you know what i mean like it seems weird to, to frame it as being like you know, we try to reach across the aisle and these fucking incels didn't want to join us and see this movie. You know what I mean? Like, that's my thing. And I'm not going to uh, pretend like I did not see several, several uh, weird tweets and, and, and racist leaning reviews of the film. I'm not going to pretend this doesn't exist. I'm not going to do that. But I do feel like people are trying to pin it on the strike and the incels and you know, the degradation of the MCU brand is right fucking there. And people just don't want to see it. They don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to have to engage with it. And I understand, quite frankly, I, I get it. You guys just don't want to deal and it's fine. I, I, I totally understand. But some of these other things that are happening are like, okay, I don't know how much longer you guys can lie to yourselves here. The Pedro news is a big deal uh, because throughout this process all the different rumors and stuff coming out about fantastic four uh you know originally it sounded like they remember there's a there's a brief period where it seemed like adam driver was a lock and it had like margot robbie attached and other people and people were, those are kind of big names for this and you know those people wanted real money so then they went from that to there was a talk of uh pen badgley from you and formerly gossip girl for Reed and some like other names and stuff that was clearly more in the vein of how MCU castings normally go. You look for someone who is recognizable, but not super known for any major parts, uh, who could like just be that character. Do you know what I mean? Who could just, you would just see that person as like Chris Evans. Chris Evans was in lots of stuff before he played Captain America. None of those things, even when he played the human torch was a thing that he was like synonymous with. So when he played Cap, he really did feel like Cap. You know, I, I I I can say a lot about the MCU, but I think a lot of their casting over the years has been quite good. Uh, so then, I guess I went from that to at some point, for some mysterious reason, they decided they did need a name, because I think they went from talking to like fucking Matt Smith, who you know not the most famous actor. And on it, quite frankly, someone who would make sense to fit in the MCU in a role like this. And I think probably could have been a good read personally. Uh, they went from that to allegedly offering it to fucking Jake Gyllenhaal. Again, a guy who already had a pretty high profile role in one of your movies. You know, people talked about Gemma Chan having a small part in Captain Marvel and then being like the main character of the Eternals. Jake Gyllenhaal is like one of the, like, the main antagonist in a gigantic Spider-Man movie, bringing him back, uh, as Reed Richards would be really fucking weird, in my opinion. But uh, he said no, because he's a smart guy for the most part. And then I guess it turned on to, to Pedro. And I get the vibe, a lot of us are getting the vibe, that Pedro just fucking wants out of the Star Wars shit, you know? And I think he's still probably committed to like another season of The Mandalorian, maybe. And I think he's still committed to whatever movie Filoni is planning that's going to like wrap up all the recent Disney Plus shows or something. So I guess he can't fully escape it. Uh, but... He's got he's got this now allegedly. He is supposed to start shooting Gladiator too soon if the strike stays done. Uh, he has some other movie. I think the new movie from the guy that did Barbarian. I think he's in that. And then also he's got Last of Us season two. I mean, well, I'm not gonna have to 
take up too much of his time with that one. But, you know, he's got a lot coming out and it's like a lot, a lot of stuff. And like, look, Pedro's really hot right now. First of all, he's a very talented actor. He's a really cool guy. People think he's cool. Uh, a lot of people think he's hot and they're not wrong. And, uh, you know, he seems like the kind of person you want for something like this. He'll be able to sell it and kind of put it on his back. Is he a good casting for Reed Richards? I don't really think so, personally. Um, it does sound like he's going to be a pretty convenient uh, way to add a splash of color to the Fantastic Four because every other iteration of what people thought the cast was going to be was very, very, very white. And for whatever reason, there's just been this weird thing of like, you know, they wanted to make they made the Human Torch black in uh, the 2015 version from Josh Trank, Fan Forstick. And uh, they, he, had, I think, had said they originally wanted to make Sue black too, and that they just the studio did not want to make her black, so they had to make this whole weird thing where like she was adopted or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I do feel like if you wanted to make the cast more diverse, it's not hard to do. I do think that you lose some of the kind of like first family Norman Rockwell shit if you don't have it be like a white family that seems like they're from like the fifties, but. I mean, who cares? Like, there's nothing wrong with updating uh, the mythology and stuff. And it's not like, I don't think it matters. They could have cast whoever the fuck, you know. Um, but I guess, I think Jeff Snyder, one of those insider guys, the insider, uh, was also saying that it sounds like they're, they really want to get Javier Bardem to play uh, Galactus, which sounds like fucking stupid. Uh, we were talking about it in our group chat, and I was like, I really feel like this sounds like an SNL sketch. Javier Bardem is Galactus. You could see Bill Hader doing a Javier Bardem voice in a purple suit, you know? It sounds like uh, Vanessa Kirby, I think, might be playing Sue Storm. And I think Vanessa Kirby's pretty cool, but I also feel like she's got extreme another blonde girl was busy vibes. Uh, she's in Napoleon, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And I think she's only in it because Jodie Comer was busy. And, like, every time I see her in something, I get that feeling of, like, someone else had stuff to do and she did not. So that's kind of a, she might be good, but I mean, not someone to get excited about. And then I guess I can't remember the fucking guy's name. My little sister had like such a thing for this guy. The guy that played Eddie Munson on stranger things. I don't remember the actor's name. Uh, but I think he might be playing Johnny storm or at least that was like the, one of the names. And then I think the only piece of casting that sounded good to me is, um, can't remember the actor's name. It's like Ebon something. The guy who played Richie on The Bear, I think, is supposed to be playing Ben Grimm. I think that's great casting. I think he's really good. And, like, there's a lot of stuff about his performance in The Bear that makes me think he would be fantastic as Ben. Ben's, like, one of my favorite Marvel characters. I love the Fantastic Four. I know a lot of people don't give a shit about them, like, at all. But I love the Fantastic Four. I think they're great. I think... I can't personally imagine a world where the MCU has a version of them that is good. Um, or even like passable to be quite frank, but there are characters I care about very deeply and I do not want to root against them. I would love for the movie to be good. You know, I, I mean, I've, I'm, I go on the record all the time as saying, I think even the Tim story, fantastic four movies are like pretty good in, in their own ways. Like they got a lot of cheesy stuff and they look kind of like shit, but there's a lot of heart to them. And I feel like they weren't that far off the mark from what a good fantastic four movie could or should be. And I have a hard time believing this movie is going to even clear that bar, to be quite frank, to be Josh Trank. Uh, and it, I don't know, I guess, I think I've read something right before I started recording about Mads Mikkelsen playing Doom, but I'm pretty sure that's just like fan conjecture. I don't know if that's real. I think that would be great, obviously. It's a kind of perfect casting, which is why I think it won't happen. 
Uh, I've been racking my brain the last couple of days to try to think of who would be the funniest, shittiest person that could get to play Doom. That would be awful. And um, I haven't come up with something quite, quite right for it yet. But this is connected to the fact that it sounds like Jeff Loveness, um, who worked on, who wrote Quantumania and used to be a writer on Rick and Morty, that Loveness got taken off of Avengers King Dynasty. He was writing it. And then Daniel Destin Cretton, or Destin Daniel Cretton? DDC. Uh, the director of Shang-Chi uh, has dropped out of directing Avengers uh, King Dynasty. He's still committed to, he's working on the Wonder Man show that they're doing, which I have no fucking idea why they're making that, but whatever. And he's also committed to making the Shang-Chi sequel, which doesn't sound like it's a big priority, but he's pro- he probably wants to make it. And uh, so now Avengers Secret Wars has a writer, has Michael Waldron, another Rick and Morty vet who worked on Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness in the first season of Loki. It's supposed to be writing Secret Wars. And then there's no director. They have not picked a director for that movie. And now King Dynasty has no writer or director. And it really feels like we're probably a week or so out from them just openly canning and getting rid of Jonathan Majors and us just never seeing King again, basically. And then just then pivoting to something else. Now, it is not inconceivable to make a Fantastic Four movie that sets up Doctor Doom well enough to where he can just be the villain in Secret Wars. Doom's a great villain. He's not a guy we have to spend nine movies hyping up or something. You know, if they did it right, doubtful, but if they did, they could just skip making the Avengers 5 all together, speed ahead to fucking Secret Wars, and get the fuck out. <laughs> and then just, you know, use that as their opportunity to do this soft reboot, you know, thing and kind of start fresh. Uh, to me, I feel like we're only getting one Marvel movie next year. They're, they're releasing Deadpool 3 in July, and then nothing. Everything else is coming out in 2025. Um, I mean, shit, uh, if the strike ends, then we might not get one at all next year. <laughs> but to me, it really feels like they're going to, they're probably going to try to maybe just not have uh, a, the, uh, an Avengers 5 or make Avengers 5 to skip it ahead to Secret Wars. And. But if they do keep it, it sounds like they'll, they're going to move away from the King Dynasty stuff. And they might just, maybe they'll try to do that shit they were talking about with bringing back the OG people. I don't know. But my big thing that I talked about a little bit with this with my friends was like, I don't know who's going to direct either of these movies, right? Because if Cretton is down, the pattern is for the Avengers movies, the big, big movies. They've only let people do them who were Joss Whedon, who at the time was a bigger name than most of the people they had working on these projects. Uh, at least for fans, I don't know. I mean, relative, argue, arguable. Uh, and then they let the Russos do the other Avengers movies because they'd already proven themselves in Winter Soldier and Civil War, right? Which means, and then they signed on Cretton to do King Dynasty. He'd already did Shang-Chi. It's like they only pick people who have already proven themselves on another MCU project. So we know they're not bringing Hyde Costa back to direct either of these movies. I don't think she would even want to. Uh, there was conjecture that they i've been saying conjecture a lot today i don't know why uh there was um scuttlebutt that uh that uh they wanted sam raimi to come back to do secret wars and i for his sake i hope not uh i think he set on to do some new horror movie with sandra bullock or something so you take that out how many mcu directors are that they, they would give these projects peyton reed has proven himself to be reliable at least if not spectacular obviously I don't think they're going to give him a fucking movie after Quantumania. And then you've got 
who do you got left from at that point? That, 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 I mean, I guess I can see a world where Ryan Coogler gets talked into it, but that would be very unfortunate for him. And then otherwise, who do you, I mean, at, at this point, I feel like they might just end up having to, to enlist someone from the shows because they got Matt Shackman directing Fantastic Four. He comes from, he, he directed uh, the WandaVision show. So maybe there's someone from that milieu that they could pull. I don't know. But it sort of sounds like a bit of a mess. And I sort of think them resorting to Pedro, pulling the sort of the Pedro lever, lets me know that they don't feel that confident about where this stuff is going. Uh, so we'll see, I guess. Uh, moving on, another bit of casting. There's less to say about this one. Is they casted the engineer, a character from the Authority in Superman Legacy, James Gunn's movie that's restarting, kickstarting the DCU. Uh, and uh, she's the actress. I don't know her from anything. Her name's Maria Gabriela de Faria. Probably not pronouncing that the best. Um, if you've never read The Authority, here's, here's my thing. I'm still not sold on The Authority being in this movie. And that's for a couple of reasons. Um, the Authority is a creation of Warren Ellis and Brian Hitch in the Wildstorm universe, which is owned by DC, but was originally not a part of DC proper. It was a separate thing. Um, it, it, it began as the Wildcats universe. It was like Jim Lee's thing from when they started image in the nineties. And then he built out stuff around Wildcats. But as time passed, the one thing that's cool about the Wildstorm books is that throughout the nineties and two thousands, Jim Lee brought in a lot of very weird people to try stuff. So this universe got like kind of slowly built out primarily by Warren Ellis had Alan Moore come in and work on like stuff for Wildcats before. Uh, Joe Casey did a lot of stuff with Wildcats later. Like, it's a lot of guys at Brubaker who came in and got to kind of like fuck around uh, and, and try to make Wildstorm like something kind of unique and sleek and modern. And a lot of the books are really good. Like a lot of them, in my opinion. Uh, and in the late 90s, he sold Wildstorm to DC. So Wildstorm has been a part of DC ever since. And from the new 52 in 20... 11 was that was that 2011 that the new 52 started whatever from that point onward a lot of these characters just became part of the dcu like fucking zealot grifter midnighter all these characters were just a part of the dcu which is a little bit weird because it's like it's kind of like how squadron supreme is a part of the marvel universe but like they're just like a justice league analog it's a little strange anyway the authority started out in the like 2000 2001 ish i guess 99 99 and uh it's a super team of characters largely built out from shit that uh, Warren Ellis is doing in Stormwatch, which is a big Wildstorm book. And the idea being that they're a superhero team that fights the real bastards. They fight dictators. They fight corrupt politicians and, and rich billionaires. And so they just fuck up stuff. They're like, they really, they just don't fuck around. And those books are like fun. And then like Mark Miller and Frank Quietly came in and made them even more ridiculous. But there's a point where the authority was very hot but it was hot because it was like different and kind of like counter to what superhero comics were like at the time. And also specifically the book had this very like widescreen vibe. Um, the layouts were always like page width panels that felt like film frames kind of, and it was kind of like a uh, hitches kind of like photorealistic style and the, the dynamism there. And there was a point where, you know, they made a character like Superman just look very outdated. And then Joe Kelly, I think Doug, I think Doug Monkey drew it. Uh, Action Comics, number seven seventy five. The issue was called uh, "What's So Funny About Truth, Justice, and the American Way," 
And it's a story where Superman fights a team called the Elite, which is so flagrantly obviously supposed to be the authority. And it's a single issue comic that sort of is Joe Kelly trying to assert that Superman is still relevant and does still matter and, and, and that his values are important and stuff. And it's a pretty fun comic. They Kelly got to adapt it himself for the animated series Superman versus the Elite, which is pretty fun. Uh, they've taken other stuff from this uh, elsewhere. And then later, Grant Morrison did a bit that I, I've never actually read this, by the way, like I, I keep meaning to, that had Superman teaming up with the authority, like in the future, or like a, a diversion of the authority when he was older and was losing his powers. So like the authority has been kind of like connected to Superman in a way. And James Gunn wants there to be an authority movie uh, in um, the DCU. And it sounds like it's probably gonna be like Matthew Vaughn directing it or something. So I guess whatever. But he's going to be introducing them in Superman. And I don't know if they're just going to be in there because he's introducing a lot of characters in this movie or if they're going to be like the primary antagonists, at which point I don't know how you do that without just doing the Joe Kelly story. And I don't think he's going to do that. So I want to have faith in the fact that James Gunn is weird and a little unpredictable, that he has something cooking that we're going to be shocked by. I don't mean shocked in like a um, vulgar kind of way, just that maybe he has cooked up something that is genuinely different. Um, I want to believe that and I want it to be good. And it's just weird that you have a Superman movie where they've already casted Metamorpho and Guy Gardner and Mr. Terrific and now the engineer and they're probably going to have to cast Jack Hawksmore from the authority. And I think the doctor maybe, or Swift, I'm not sure who the other character is going to be, at least in this movie. I know we're not going to have like Midnight or an Apollo because they're just, I mean, they're essentially like gay Superman and Batman. So it's weird to introduce them in a Superman movie, in my opinion. But I mean, the, uh, got announced that there is, you know, as long as the strike stays, you know, dead like it's supposed to, that Superman Legacy is going to hit its original release date. They don't have to move it back. They're on, they're on target because they've been doing all the pre-production stuff. So uh, next July, year and a half from now, we'll find out what's, uh, what's good. But, um, it's, I, I want to say, I don't want to say it's like exciting cause it didn't really excite me per se, but it did feel a little more hopeful than the, the Marvel news where it's like, you know what? I mean, for all we know, James Gunn's DC is going to fucking suck. I don't know. Maybe, you know what I mean? Like he might, maybe he doesn't have the goods, who knows, but there's like this sliver of a chance that it could be something really special for now. Um, and until it comes to fruition, we can kind of keep our hope up. So that's kind of what the engineer casting was like for me. But if we're going to talk about the future of the superhero movie genre, we've got to fucking talk about this Madam Web trailer. Because my fucking God. Okay. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to get into this. Uh, I don't know what I was doing. I don't know if I was at work or I was like on my way somewhere, but I got a text in our group chat from my boy, Justin. And it was just a link to the trailer and just like, what the fuck his reaction. And I was like, oh, it can't be that bad. It. The Sony Spider-Man universe, I don't know what the fuck they call it, is like. Venom is like not necessarily a good movie, but it's like fun. There's like a lot of interesting stuff to it, I'd say. Can't call it a great movie. Can't say it's really good. I know that the Sony universe is a laughing stock to the MCU people, but I thought Venom was at least fun. 
And I think the number one thing I liked about Venom was that it felt like a throwback. It felt like this should have come out in the early 2000s or the 90s or something. And I liked that, I liked that about it. Venom 2 is like has a lot of problems, like a lot of problems, but it's also very fun. Uh, and it's it's interesting and it feels different at the very least. I know it sounds silly to like hype up something just being different, even if it's not good, but I think it does matter. I've never watched Morbius. I may never watch Morbius. And Morbius didn't look like fun or exciting. It actually just looked like shit. Even the memes about it weren't fun, you know. But the Craven movie, same vibe. I'm like, this, I don't know why they're doing this. It doesn't seem interesting. Madam Webb, however, is it feels like someone is trying to accelerate, is trying to hasten the end of the superhero movie genre era. It is so, it feels like so many bad ideas rolled into one and that, that I'm almost impressed, quite frankly, uh, because there's never been another situation. Okay, wait, that's not true. I was, I was about to say there's never been another situation where a studio is trying to mine as much from one corner of an IP as this, where it's like, okay, we can't make Spider-Man movies other than Spider-Verse stuff, apparently, but we can make a bunch of movies from ancillary characters to Spider-Man. Like they were developing a Black Hat and Silver Sable movie. They were developing a Nightwatch movie. Um, all these just random characters from like background bits in Spider-Man. And I was going to say no one else has done that, but it's actually like a large, larger budgeted, budgeted version of what, uh, Warner Brothers often does with Batman, like in television, where it's like, oh, fuck, we can't make a Batman show. We'll do Arrow. It's just like Batman, but it's Green Arrow. And then, oh, we'll have Gotham, but Batman can't show up in it. Oh, we'll do this other Gotham Knights, but Batman can't show up. And you know, you know what I mean? There's this thing of like, we have to do use the Batman stuff because people like Batman, but we don't, we can't do Batman because we, we got to be careful with our golden cow. This feels like that, but bigger and worse and so much worse. Because Batman actually does have a lot of like interesting, compelling rogues and supporting characters and stuff where you can tell stories with just those characters and people are already used to solo adventure books with those characters that Batman isn't in or that he only shows up like in the shadows or something. So there's, there's already like a, a blueprint for like a Nightwing movie that is that Batman's not in where he's constantly referencing the fact that Batman's not around and it's not odd. Spider-Man's not like that. We're like, other than, uh, I don't, it's not, uh, I don't know the name of it. There's a, there's like a book about the villains, like kind of the work, the work a day villain types that I think Nick Spencer wrote. I think Steve Lieber drew. You can comment, I guess, if you remember, but I don't remember the name of it, but it was pretty fun. And it was just about a bunch of villains, like doing regular life stuff and struggling and everything. Like you could make that a movie. They wouldn't, but you could, but no, they're making Madam Web. If you don't remember Adam Webb is a supporting Spider-Man character from the late seventies or early eighties. I want to say it might be like mid to late eighties, uh, that I think Denny O'Neill created, if I'm not mistaken. And she's like blind and she is in this like web esque like thing that she needs to survive, but she's also like psychic or something. And she sees that she gets visions and she becomes a figure that Peter goes to, I mean, really, if you remember Madam Web, you remember from the animated series, the 90s one, where Madam Web is just like a character that Peter goes to to get like advice or, or guidance and stuff. Functionally, she's not like that different from like Dr. Leslie Tompkins in the Batman books, sort of. That might be a reach, but it's not, it's not super dissimilar. 
And she's an older woman. That's like the big thing about Madam Web. And uh, there's a bunch of other characters who are ancillary to Spider-Man. There's like multiple iterations of Spider-Woman, for instance. Uh, and they all have, you know, like com- complicated, similar origins or whatever. This movie is just throwing them all in one big movie. And it's like Dakota Johnson is Madam Web. I saw, I, 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 don't remember, I didn't fave the tweet, so I can't find it. But there was a tweet where someone said that like Dakota Johnson is such bad casting to play a person who has visions of the future because she is incapable of projecting urgency. Like every scene in the trailer that's her being like, I'm trying to save you or something bad's going to happen. She doesn't sound even like hurry, harried. It's just kind of like, yeah, look, this is going to happen. We got to do this guys. Hey, Hey, this guy's trying to kill you. Like she just, she just does not sound like a person who was coming to like, tell you about some real shit, but she's playing Madam web. I don't remember her fucking character's real name, but it's like a young, pretty version of, of Madam web who starts getting these visions and they basically try to turn the way the final destination visions look into a superpower. Like it makes her a good fighter because she's watched the fight unfold or whatever. Um, it's actually kind of very similar, like knowing, I think the Nick Cage movie, it just looks whatever. It looks very bad. She's like a paramedic and she gets these psychic abilities and she explains how it's connected to some research. Her mother was doing with spiders there's a guy in like the Spider-Man equivalent of the Black Flash costume type deal. Who's like a like a Spider-Man's trying to kill these young teenage girls, and it's like you know the thirty-year-old teenager type thing. Sydney Sweeney's one of them. I don't remember the other two actresses' names, but they're trying to make Sydney Sweeney look like frumpy and nerdy, and it just looks hilarious. Like it looks very much like a bad porno, and I don't want to say that like because Sydney Sweeney is so often sexualized in her roles. And that's not what I'm comparing to a porno. I'm comparing to a porno because it's just like very lazy costuming and very lazy hair and makeup where it's just like this big like bombshell porn star. And it's like, she's playing a librarian and you know, she's playing a librarian because of these glasses and fucking nothing else. You know, that's the vibe I got from it. It's like, why are you trying to make her look like this? She doesn't look young. She looks like an older, not that she looks old, but she looks like a fully fucking grown woman dressing up for Halloween as a teen girl. It's very strange. Uh, but they basically the trailer kind of reveals that all three of these girls are playing different versions of a spider woman character, not Jessica drew. She's not involved, but like city Sweeney's playing Julia Carpenter. And then, uh, one of the other girls is playing like Aranya, the spider heart or whatever. And then the other one is playing, um, a different Spider-Woman. I'm gonna. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna be very frank. I do not know Spider-Man lore to this degree, uh, especially the stuff that, in my opinion, is usually like not memorable and kind of sucks. But it's like she has these powers. She has to protect these girls. This guy's trying to kill them because they're gonna turn into Spider-Women and they're gonna stop him in the future. And the villain is revealed to be Ezekiel Stane, who is who's created by J. Michael Straczynski when he took over Spider-Man in like the year or like early 2001. And when I was in high school the first several issues of JMS's Spider-Man was like my favorite thing ever. I thought it was so brilliant and smart and different and crazy and just like out there. And I loved the stuff with Ezekiel and Morlin and all this shit. I was, I was fucking bongos for it. Cause I was 15. Uh, some of it still holds up. I'm not going to front. And then not the nine 11 issue. That was terrible. But, uh, if you've ever seen the panel that shows like Dr. Doom crying, it's like him crying, reacting to 9-11. It's from, it's from this, this run of Spider-Man. It, uh, anyway, 
Ezekiel is like a character in the comics who's like an older guy who has Peter's powers and he got them from in a different way. And he's like kind of a friend of Peter, but then he's also kind of shady. And he's like an older mentor figure. Well, for this, it's Tahar Rahim from Jacques Odiard's A Prophet, who I also just saw in uh, Napoleon the other day. Uh, who I haven't seen in movies in between those things, but I loved him in A Prophet. It's him. And I'm like, well, Tahar Rahim's getting paid. That's cool. But he's like a hunk. And so I thought that was weird that they're making him like young and hunky and a villain and a murderer. And then it implies that these girls either will see them become spider woman, spider women in real sequences, or they will just be some kind of like flash forward where we see it. It's like fan service, but we won't really see them turn. I don't know, but there was some leaks last year or something about how it was going to be very, I don't know if this stuff is true, but I find in the last three or four years, Every time some random guy on Reddit has leaks about a superhero movie, they almost, whatever the worst ones are, almost always turn out to be true. So I'm guessing this is real. Is that uh, Adam Scott is in the trailer as one of the paramedics she works with. And people are saying that he's playing Ben Parker, Uncle Ben. And that one of the things that this villain's going to go after after these girls is he's going to try to kill Mary Parker before she can have Peter. So the, the, the Madam Web's going to have to protect like a pregnant Peter mom. And that it'll lead into stuff for Venom 3 where Eddie Brock, the, like the Venom suit, gets a vision that like in the future this, this thing called Spider-Man's going to kill them. So they have to go kill it first. And they get there and Peter's like a little boy. And that Eddie doesn't want to harm him. So it turns into like Eddie trying to protect this little boy and the symbiote trying to kill him or whatever. They both sound like bad Terminator things. They both sound very bad. But I'm willing to at least give the Venom version of it a shot because Tom Hardy has like screenwriting credit on it. He's like very obsessive about this character. And they're letting um, Kelly Marcel, I think her name is, who wrote the first two movies, direct this one. So like, I'm pretty sure there's going to full on full tilt boogie given to the the weirdness of their version of venom so like i'm, I'm on board for that to be quite honest but madam webb looks so bad but also so marvelous in a way like it literally feels like back in the day when i was a kid and we didn't get 10 to 12 fucking superhero movies a year you'd only get one or two and the you know fanboys were not enough of a reputable voting block to where their opinions mattered. So people that made these movies just changed whatever the fuck they want from the source material. Cause they were like, well, who cares? Who's going to know these fucking virgins, you know? And this feels like that, like, like the idea that you, you can't make a Spider-Man movie, but you guys could make a Madam web movie that also has three Spider-Man, Spider-Women in it. And also has Ezekiel and also hints at this and hints at that and all this stuff. Like it's so fucking bad. It almost seems like a, like a, like a TNT pilot or something or like a, or like the, I don't know if you guys remember Malibu Comics and Nightman had his own show that like David Hasselhoff's like stunt double was in or some shit. It was, we're going back to that. It feels like we're consciously going back to that era. And I think that's funny. So I'm not going to like hate on it. Uh, and then Sydney Sweeney also had another trailer out today for that rom-com she's doing with Glenn Powell. When I heard they were doing an already rom-com together, I was like, well, they're both super hot. And they're both pretty charming. This could be really cool. And then I saw the first trailer and I was like, I don't know what the fuck this is about. I didn't watch the new trailer, but Sydney Sweeney is not having a good time, which is nuts because she was in that movie reality this year on max. Really good movie. She's a real actress. She's very talented. I just feel bad for her and some of the roles she takes. Uh, but 
Madam Web, we're going to be there opening weekend. I 1000% have to see Madam Web as soon as humanly possible. Uh, this doesn't feel like more BS for like, This just looks like shit. I don't, I don't care. This looks like so uniquely bad that I have to witness it. I have to, I have to bear witness. So look forward to a video about that in the, in the future, whenever the fuck it comes out. I think February or something. All right. We've, this is like the majority of the pod. Apparently we've just been talking about the new stuff. So we're going to move on. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about what I watched uh, a little bit. Not, I don't have a ton to say about a lot of this stuff because this is kind of the part of the year where a lot of the end of the year movies that don't really release until like Christmas and the beginning of 20 of the next year, they're all screening like now. So like I'm seeing a lot of them, but then like some of them have weird embargoes or some of them like they encourage you to save your coverage until closer to when it opens in your market. So like it's why I've watched like seven or eight movies in the last two weeks that you guys haven't seen reviews for yet because like I'm still working on them, but I'm they're, they're going to go up like you know, later, I guess, but you will see them soon. That's why I'm not going to go too deep into those movies. Cause I don't want to just give you my like raw cookie dough opinions. You know what I mean? Um, but I started the week in, uh, a bit of a noir vember mood and, uh, I wanted to rewatch the killer cause it hit Netflix and I, I loved it, but I really wanted to rewatch the samurai first. Cause I haven't watched that probably since maybe high school. But then I didn't feel like watching it, and I ended up watching two other Jean-Pierre Melville films. I watched uh, Bob Le Flambeur, like Bob the Gambler, and I watched Le Cercle Rouge. Uh, I can't pronounce anything from other languages because I sound like a fucking goober. But uh, Bob the Gambler from 1956, which is, I ended up, I love watching old movies, and they have like this sort of like primordial energy to them because you've already seen 20 movies that ripped them off later but it's new to you you know uh and yeah it's just about this like lifelong criminal gambler guy who hits a really bad streak of bad luck and ends up having to plan a heist and kind of go back into this thing he largely left behind like he's left it behind to the point that he has like a buddy of his as a cop and stuff you know and he's an older man and he ends up planning this heist and the heist planning stuff is really exciting it was very clearly influential on like oceans 11 and stuff and then a lot of the gambling stuff is pretty heavily influential on Paul Thomas Anderson's Hard Eight, the Phil Baker Hall kind of playing the uh, Bob part, sort of, sort of. Uh, and the guy that plays Bob in this, Roger Duquesne, is really good. His performance is really strong. And I just liked it. It had like just a really nice vibe to it. It's 1956. It's sort of like a precursor to some of like the, the French New Wave stuff. Um, but Melville, you know, throughout his career experimented with like crime fiction a lot in, in really interesting ways. And this is like one of his earliest or maybe his earliest dalliance with the genre. And it has a really great energy, very sweet, beautiful photography, nice performances, great score, really, really cool movie. And then I watched Le Cercle Rouge, which is much later in his career. And it's sort of him iterating on, he's, he's made multiple crime movies at this point. He's got uh, Elaine Delon, you know, from The Samurai, is in it as a uh, criminal who gets out of jail and his rad mustache. He just looks like um like a fuckable version of Cole Sprouse, and uh, he he ends up needing to do a job. Not needing to do a job, but a guy, one of the guards in prison, hips him to like this this big gig, and he ends up teaming up with another criminal who's on the run from the police. And then like an ex-cop who's like a good marksman because the, the the heist requires a good marksman. And the big thing about the movie is there's a huge kind of silent 
heist sequence that's sort of designed to like, I don't know, one up the one from Rafifi. I've never seen Rafifi, so I can't compare it. And I will admit that I was not as in the mood to watch this as I thought I was. So the movie's a little longer. It's like a two hours, 15 or something like that, maybe 220. And it had just a more deliberate pace than I felt like watching. It doesn't mean it's bad. I, I like movies that are deliberately paced. It's just that I got to the heist part and I was like digging it, but I was like, eh, I, I shouldn't have watched this tonight. This is not the movie I should have watched. Uh, really good, but I just didn't, I didn't, it didn't hit me. I didn't have like really great feelings afterwards. I was like, oh, okay, well that was well made. Um, there's one bit in the movie in the heist where the marksman guy needs to like shoot in this perfect hole to be able to get into this area. It's like, it feels like a video game kind of, but they have like this like tripod thing and this, all this stuff's lined up from line up the perfect shot. And then out of nowhere, he just pulls, he pulls it off and freehands it. And it's just like, so I talked about uh, last week, maybe the episode before about Ferrari, the Michael Mann film. And how there's just a few moments in it that are just like man movie moments that just make you go, whoa, let's go. And um, I, I like that in movies. It's like a soft spot for me or whatever. And like this was that. Like and it's, and it's this very like deliberate, interesting, you know, like uh, like deconstruction almost of like the heist genre. Just this like badass moment. that just I really, really fucked with it so hard. It just like really stuck with me. Um, I was going to rewatch Sweet Smell Success, which I've made a video about on the channel before. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, but I just ended up not, I ended up watching a different movie called Murder by Contract. I'd seen a handful of guys like Josh Lewis and a couple other critics on Letterboxd reference this in their coverage of the killer. Um, as it being like a movie that's obviously a big, uh, you know, like uh, ancestor to it. And I watched it and it fucking is, it's, it's from like the fifties. Um, but I, it's a movie that like, I, it feels extremely modern. It feels like a movie that a lot of people have cribbed from and it just doesn't seem, <laughs> it doesn't seem like a movie from the fifties. Like it does, but other, other times it just feels like they fucking made this then. Um, this, uh, what's the, I have to look it up. I'm sorry. There's an, it's basically about a young hitman uh, who has like a, a very, What's the right way to describe this? Has a very like particular philosophy on life, um, and he won't shut the fuck up about it. Like he he basically, um, we see this guy who has like a regular job, doesn't doesn't make a lot of money, but he wants to make more because there's a house he wants to buy, and he basically knows if he works at his regular straight job, it'll take him you know twenty years to be able to afford the house, but if he gets into crime, he'll be able to afford it like much quicker. So he becomes a, a hitman and very much feels like a, like a, you know, an ancestry to like Patrick Bateman and those type of characters that like we get really into their psyche and hear like voiceover and them talking about shit. And he's so fucking insufferable and so irritating and like has all these like grandiose ideas about stuff and philosophy and shit. So a huge, clearly had to be a big influence on the killer. I feel like, but the thrust of the movie is that he gets flown out to California for one hit. He's got to kill this woman who's going to testify against his boss. But like she's in witness protection and he fucks around for like two weeks of the trip, not even like going to see her or anything. Um, he just keeps hanging out doing fun California stuff. And the two guys who are his handlers were mad at him and stuff. Like we have to kill her, but we kill this person by this date. Blah, blah, blah. 
And then he explains that he was like actually not fucking around. He was making sure they weren't tailed because he's so particular. It's all crazy shit. So he ends up having like four days to do it. And then when he finally decides to do it, they take him to where she is and he finds that it's a woman. They did not tell him it was a woman. Her name's like Billy or something. So he thought it was a guy. And he explains, like, oh, you don't kill women because like you're because of principles. He's like, no, no, I, I do. It's just you have to pay me extra because killing women is fucking hard. They're unpredictable. You never know. And what what ensues is basically like a wily e. coyote type deal of him trying to find ways to kill her because he doesn't like guns. He always have, finds other ways to kill people. Uh, but he like it keeps everything keeps failing. Like it literally feels like like watching Wile E. Coyote trying to kill the Roadrunner. But in like a, you know, black and white, gritty, like 1958, 1956, like noir movie. And it's very funny. It's very weird. And it's it just everything about it. It was like, I cannot believe they made this fucking movie then because it espouses so many like just dark thoughts and ideas. Um, and it's just it's really crazy to me. I really liked it. It's a it's I think it's on Tubi. I think I watched it on Tubi. I might have watched it on. Yeah, I think I watched it on Tubi. Really, really good flick. It's not very long either. It's only like an hour and a half. Um but very, very well made, very funny. Then I rewatched The Killer, uh, and I, I still really like it quite a bit. Um, I've been trying to cull together my my best movies of the year list, and it's definitely in my top ten. I've been rearranging my list every other day, so who knows how it's all gonna all gonna go? I'm so I'm so indecisive, but I think it's a great movie. I'm glad I got to see it on a in, on a big screen, a bigish screen at a theater before watching it on Netflix because like it you know it does look different, like the compression and stuff. But it still looks great. The music is great. Um, I, I'll I reviewed it for Looper, um, but I, I really really like the movie, and I keep seeing people talk about it being slight and like whatever and stuff. But like I really I, I really like it. I think it's I sort of am a guy who always has a bit of a soft spot for a filmmaker's like lesser known movies or not lesser known, but like the movie the movies of theirs that are not like everyone says this is their best. Not like I'm trying to be a special person or something or Elma Snowflake. I'm different, but it's more like those are the movies that tend to, I tend to gravitate towards. I'm like, yeah, that was like a really cool one of his best, but it's not, it doesn't feel like one of his best movies that you could say are almost like B sides. I guess that's how I feel about it. And I think the killer kind of is, is one of those, <clears throat> excuse me. But, um, then I watched two, oh no, before, sorry. I watched two big movies and later and back to back actually on Tuesday and I'm reviewing both of them for the channel, so I'm not going to get too deep. But I watched Ridley Scott's Napoleon, and then I watched Bradley Cooper's Maestro, uh, the Netflix film about Leonard Bernstein. And Apple is marketing Napoleon like like it is a super serious awards bait war epic biographical biographical drama. And yeah, you get all the Ridley Scott having a ball recreating these big famous historical battles. The battle scenes are all pretty tight, but everything in between the action is like, it's like someone asked Ridley Scott while he was researching this project, what do you think about Napoleon Bonaparte? And his answer was like, what a fucking goof. What a fucking loser. What a fucking complete failure. So the whole movie is I remember when they cast a Joaquin Phoenix, I was like, why is Joaquin Phoenix in this? Why did he do this? And then I remember the other time that he worked with Ridley Scott was in Gladiator, and he plays like a like just a fucking simpering, irritating guy in that too. And this has taken that to like a whole nother degree. This is probably my favorite Joaquin, Joaquin performance since 
the master, I would say. It's probably his best. I love him in the master. This is not quite as good as that, but it's in a fun wheelhouse where he is just a fucking goober. And he's just so pathetic and shitty and he sucks. He's just a guy who sucks. He's like one step away from being like a Tim Robinson character. Uh, and the movie's hilarious. I'm not going to get much deeper than that, but it's a funny fucking movie. And I saw people who were like, I hate this is dumb. Why, why did he make this? Why isn't it deeper? Why isn't he making commentary about the history and stuff? And I'm like, I don't know. I think he is making commentary and the commentary is fucking ambition is lame. And trying to be a, 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 a conqueror is stupid. And everyone that everyone who's psychologically drawn to doing it are fucking goobers. I thought that's pretty simple. But people wanted more. Uh, and they're going to get more. There's like a four-hour cut that allegedly Apple is going to release to Apple TV+. Plus. I don't know if that's really going to happen or not. But it really seems hopeful. Maybe the four-hour cut will be good. You guys know how you know that goes for him. And then... Um, I watched that at the theater across the street from my apartment and then I had to immediately when I got out go down to Georgetown to see Maestro and I did and that one's going to be a hard video to make because I have a lot of mixed up feelings about it and I have to do just a little more research because I don't actually know that much about Leonard Bernstein honestly um, but I <laughs> I asked my friend Izzy uh, who you guys know as uh, the creator and host and producer and brilliant woman behind Beacon Rewind, the channel. And um, I'm not going to like give away what she what she said about the movie because I don't know if she's doing anything about the movie herself and I don't want to be a fucker. But uh, she basically distilled the entire movie down into this one sentence and it made me laugh so fucking hard because it immediately was like, that's 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 the key to this movie. That is one thousand percent explains everything about this movie like it's such it's so cutting and i'm not going to be able to come up with something better than that in my review but i thought it was very funny and she's a brilliant woman and i assume that if you follow me that you already follow her because she's um much bigger and does really great work but yeah it, I, I liked it the the best thing i can say about it without getting deeper is it's a movie that i thought was pretty good that had things i liked in it but that it is felled at almost every turn by the fact that everyone involved desperately wants to fucking win an Oscar. And then if like the people that made it just cared less about that, I think it would be a fantastic movie. I know it's a, it's kind of reductive, but that's how I felt. It was like, man, if Bradley Cooper wasn't so fucking hungry for this shit, there's a line in uh, the last season of succession. I don't remember what episode it is. Um, but where, uh, I think Kendall is trying really hard to get um to get Shiv's ex-boyfriend guy like to get him to get their fake version of Bernie Sanders played by Eric Bogosian to get him on board with something and he's just so desperate and open about it he's just so it's so again kind of pathetic and very typically Ken and the guys I can't remember the character's name but the guy's response is like uh yeah I forgot how how eager you are to get fucked at a, to get laid at a party you know like like you, if you've ever I don't know if you ever had a lot of guy friends or you've ever gone to parties, you know, if you ever have a guy friend who like goes to social events for the sole purpose of trying to trying to get laid, everything about them uh, is like very just hard to look at and watch because it's just like you, it, you look like an animal uh, and it's just so embarrassing. And that is kind of how Bradley Cooper feels in this movie. It's just it's very weird, but we'll get into that deeper. Uh, I will. The last thing I'll talk about for what I watched this week was I watched. The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, which is R.I.P. Billy Friedkin's last movie. Uh, and he shot it for Showtime, so it's like technically like a TV movie. I don't think it got a theatrical release anywhere. 
I had seen some people talk about how it looked slight and like it looked like a TV show and it, they didn't like how it looked. But it's probably top five, top seven movies of the year for me. I fucking loved it. I think it's amazing. Uh, I've never seen the Bogart Kane Mutiny movie. Basically, what I understand was that there's uh, the novel, The Kane Mutiny, which tells like this whole story. And like the last act of it is like the court martial trial. And they made that a movie. And then the same novelist turned that into a play, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial, that is just a dramatization of the trial part of the story, aka the good part. Um, and I think Robert Altman made it a, a TV movie, like one of those like Playhouse 90 type deals. And uh, here Friedkin has taken the play and updated it to not being World War II, to being um, like now, basically, sort of like, you know, like, a, like the Forever Wars in, in the Middle East. Uh, and the general concept is that there's, uh, a captain of a ship, like a, a ship that hunts mines and like, you know, diffuses mines, mimes, mimes, mines. And, uh, one of his officers, uh, mutinies against him and takes, takes control of the ship. And then now he's getting a court martial for that. Cause that's like a hor- bad thing you can't do in the Navy. Uh, so the trial is about whether or not he was justified. Uh, I don't remember the name of the actor who plays uh, the guy who's on trial, but Jason Clark plays his lawyer. Uh, Lance Reddick plays not the judge, but like the head of the like council presiding over it. Uh, so this is like one of his last, I think he has maybe one other role after this, but it's, it's fucking, it's my favorite thing Lance Reddick's ever done. Even more than the wire. Not, not, I don't like this more than the wire. I like his performance in this more than his performance in the wire. And uh, an actress who's from like the good wife, universe or whatever who plays the prosecutor who's really good really really fits into this very well and then the captain is played by Kiefer Sutherland and this is the part that Bogart played in the movie back in the day and it's like such a good Kiefer Sutherland performance and it's not gonna get a lick of Oscar buzz but I was obsessed I was obsessed with his performance it was so fucking good it's so funny and also so like kind of pathetic and like He's playing a guy who's very clearly kind of like a megalomaniac and a piece of shit. And like you feel justified that he was not a good captain. He was very bad to his crew. And Jason Clark has to sort of like eviscerate him to, to try to win the case. But there's kind of more than meets the eye about what's going on in the case. And the movie does a really good job of making you feel... I guess the like the original, because it took place from like World War II, the ending is supposed to kind of be like it kind of pulls the rug out from under you about being like, no, this guy was a hero, and even though he was a piece of shit, he like deserved better than this because he was a war hero or whatever. Whereas in this, um, the captain is so much easier to just kind of like see as like kind of pathetic and lame, but also worthy of sympathy. Like you can kind of he's like kind of if, if you've seen Observe and Report, um, there's the scene where like the characters are like eavesdropping on Seth Rogen talking to this guy and they're eavesdropping because they think it's going to be funny, but his character is so like so down and out in it that the guy comes out of the closet and goes, hey, I thought this was going to be funny, but it's actually just really uncomfortable. He just walked out. That's kind of Kiefer Sutherland's performance in this where you're like, oh, like, oh my God, dude. It's, uh, it's like so, I don't want to say cringe, but it's just uncomfortable. And everyone in it is really good. I love stuff like A Few Good Men. Uh, you know what I mean? I like, I, I, for, uh, it's sort of like the antithesis of Rules of Engagement, another 
military court movie that Friedkin made. Um, whereas that movie is very loud and like brash and like over the top and almost feels like an Oliver Stone movie at times. Kind of, uh, this is like much more chill and like more direct and, and streamlined and simple. And it's really good. The script is really strong. The performances are really good. It just, it's just meat and potatoes. Good shit. It's so fucking good. I, and like, Every interaction, you know, like there's stuff in like law movies where someone objects and then they're arguing over like a specific thing, but it feels like so rote because you've seen a million lawyer shows, you've seen a million court movies. This is like every time there's a point of contention between the the counselors, it is like life or death. Like, need I remind you that we are talking about a man's history and his reputation? It's like it's just so fucking. I gotta stop getting that loud this close to the mic. I gotta fucking learn. Sorry, um, I can be like this in real life too, unfortunately. Uh, it is, it is so good. That's, I, I, I hate a thing about myself, which is that when I really like a movie, I sometimes have a very hard time articulating why and how, uh, without just being like, Oh, it's good. Oh my God, it's good. But, um, that is the best feeling in the world. Honestly, is when you watch something that makes you feel that way. Uh, I was very excited about this too, because, um, I have a lot of friends who like movies too. Uh, like I, I love, I love that about my friendships. And a lot of times we all watch similar stuff. Like that's kind of what's really fun about Hooptober is like we're all watching horror movies. So some of us have a lot of overlap, but I loved that. I, I like, I, I mentioned that I watched this and then my boy Pat watched it. Like, and then you know, were all talking about it, like this movie together. And like, I just love movies so much. I love them so much. And I really like this movie a lot. And I think people should check it out. It's like on Showtime. I, I don't know if you have Showtime or not. Like, uh, but there's other way. I don't know if you can rent it anywhere or whatever, but it's, it's worth watching. I think it's really, really good. Uh, really, really good. If you've seen the original or read the book or any of that type of shit, um, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. If you after you see this, um, cause I don't really have the same like frame of reference for that, but we have time for a couple of questions, I think. So, uh, they're both from my homie, Luke Davis. All right. Luke asks, when I was nine and living in ATL at the time, I saw a scene from a 1984 horror movie called Mutant or Night Shadows. It was about a, it was about 1.30 p.m. So I was like, what the fuck? Why is a horror movie on at this time? It scared the hell out of me. Hell out of me but years later, I watched the movie in full to fight the proverbial demon and it sucked. Have you ever had a similar experience with a movie? I have not had a similar experience where there's something that scared me a lot as a kid and then I watched it as an adult and it was not good. Hmm but I've had situations where I watched something that had a lot, a lot of power over me as a kid and I watched it as an adult and it didn't anymore or it felt very different because I'm grown. I did a video about a movie called death by temptation on the channel a few years back, I think during 2020. So it's, you got got to scroll back a lot for that one. Um, but that was a movie I saw very young and it, it had a very strong impression on me because it was the first time I'd seen a movie that, looked like the New York that I knew because I used to go visit a lot of my family in Brooklyn a lot when I was a kid and we didn't go to any of the like sightseeing parts of New York. We went to like Flatbush and stuff. So there was just like, I, I never, my conception of New York, I'd not seen it in a movie really, I guess kind of in like beat street maybe, but like that movie felt like the New York that I knew, I guess. Uh, and there were a lot of images and in, in, in energy from the movie that, that really held a thing over me because it was so like haunting at the time. And then I watched it as an adult and I thought, oh, this is a really good movie. I didn't feel scared though. Like that, that didn't hold on to me. Poltergeist 2. I don't know if you guys remember from the like Rugrats. 
Chucky Finster was afraid of the guy on the Quaker oatmeal package. And I realized he just looks like the guy from Poltergeist. Uh, and in Poltergeist 2, Poltergeist 1 is a great movie, but in Poltergeist 2, I don't remember a lot of it, but I remember having, I remember really fucking terrifying me as a kid. And there, I never rewatched it. I refuse to rewatch it. Uh, cause I'm actually, it's the only thing I'm afraid will still scare me. And I still want to deal with it. I mean, I used to have nightmares about it. I have so many memories and images of the movie that might not even be from the movie. They might be from nightmares I had of the movie, you know, and I just never want to reconcile that. I'd like to just never open that can of worms, but another movie, similar vibe, Jacob's ladder. I watched that as a kid when I probably shouldn't have. And I didn't know, I thought it was like a full on straight horror movie. I didn't know it was like a psychological drama and all the stuff about like Vietnam or whatever. I just thought it was like fucked up. Everything about the movie was so unsettling to me and I watched it as a grown up. And then I think I had to review that really bad remake they made, but I rewatched the original and I was like, Oh, this is like really well made. This is like pretty good. But it like, it didn't fuck with me the same, I guess. Cause I've lived and I've experienced things. Um, but yeah, I've never had one where it had a thing on me and then it sucked, but I have had, it had a thing on me and then it's just like totally different vibe. Cause I'm, cause I'm older. I'm a grown man. I'm almost 40. Um, Oh, second question from Luke Davis. Uh, and what's a TV series episode that you wish had been a fully fledged movie and a movie you think should have been a series episode? I will say I don't, when I saw this question, I was trying to wreck my brain to figure out the second part of it. I don't think there's a movie that I watched that I thought should have been just an episode of TV ever. Uh, not, not like I can't think of a single time I felt that way, but usually if I see a movie, it doesn't feel like it should be a movie. I usually think it should just been a short film. And that happens all the time. There's tons of movies where you're watching it and you're like, man, if this was only 20 minutes long, great movie, <laughs> everything else in this sucks, you know? Um, so that I can't even pinpoint any specific ones, but I feel the way about a lot of goddamn movies. Um, when I watched the original when a stranger calls, I was like, what the fuck is the rest of this movie? The beginning is so great. It should have just been a short and I guess was a short. Uh, but the other, the flip side of that, I have an unconventional answer, I guess. Um, in Lost, season four, the episode The Economist, uh, Saeed in, in the flash forward part of, of the show is like a, like a hitman assassin type espionage person. And at the end of the episode, they reveal that he's working for Ben Linus. And one of the things I liked about season four and onward of Lost is like, I feel like the show always had sort of a push and pull between being a good network drama for normies and being like catnip for like obsessive sci-fi genre fans. And by the big mid series twist in, at the end of season three, it felt kind of like them being like, Hey, a lot of the normies left. The ones that are still here. They want the real shit. We're about to give you the real shit. And then season four has tons of stuff like that. That's like, don't worry, we got you. I know this is what you've been, what you've been craving. And this episode in particular stuck out to me because it was just like a random fucking episode of the show that turns into like a, a spy movie kind of. So I can't say I think that should have been a movie because it is a, a bunch of movies. There's a bunch of movies that are just like this. But I I specifically, I just wanted it with Naveen Andrews and with, uh, the fuck is that? Michael Emerson. And that's like the, their interplay and their, their couple of scenes together. I was like, I could watch a whole ass movie of this, like this relationship. And Naveen never quite got a really great like movie role, 
um, something equal to how good he was as Saeed on the show. Michael Emerson's in lots of stuff, obviously, but like the two of them together in some kind of spy guy movie, I think would have been, would have been great really. So yeah, that's my answer for that. Kind of a, kind of a cop out, but yeah, a movie version of the economist that doesn't actually take place in the world of lost. Uh, so I guess like an AU, is that what the kids on, on, uh, those, those weird fanfic sites call it an AU of, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I can't defend this, but yeah, thanks for the questions, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, I think that does it for this episode. I don't have anything else to talk about really. Uh, I, like I said, I've all these movies that I've been watching lately that you see me log in Letterboxd, that you see me loosely talk about on the show, they are going to get full review uh, videos in the next few weeks and stuff. Um, I just, I'm still figuring out the schedule for that and like when and stuff, but they're, they're coming. So don't, you know, don't fret. Uh, not that you, why would you be afraid? That's weird. If you were watching this on YouTube and you liked it, please give it a thumbs up. If you loved it, I would really appreciate it if you subscribe and hit the little bell icon. It'll send you notifications whenever I have a new video out, assuming you have notifications enabled in your YouTube app on your phone, which very few people have. Uh, but it would just, you'll, you'll always know when I'm putting on something new, which I think a lot of you uh, want, right? And uh, if you have any comments uh, or questions about this episode, you can put them in the comments. If you have any questions that you want me to answer in a future episode, um, please put them in. You can just say, I want this to be answered on the show. And I'll do that, obviously. You can also send me questions on Twitter, on Blue Sky, on fucking Instagram, uh, everything. Uh, I have an email address as well, armchurator at gmail.com. You can shoot me questions there. Uh, and if you were listening to the podcast version, just on whatever you listen to your podcast on, um, please follow, subscribe, leave me reviews, uh, share with friends, whatever, you know. Um, I really do want to say that it's really nice that like the show feels like it's growing. Um, not like a ton or super fast or nothing like that. And that's okay. But it's something I like doing and I'm glad that you guys seem to like it too. And I couldn't do it without, it sounds weird to say I couldn't do it without you, but I genuinely actually couldn't. Cause if no one wanted to listen, this would be just my inner monologue, which it basically is what it actually sounds like. So Thank you. You guys are extremely important to me and to the show and you're just extremely important in general. You know what I mean? Like if in this world you matter, you're very important uh, to someone, probably me. I love you all. Uh, that's it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I will be back soon. We'll, we'll talk soon. Okay. We'll talk soon.